show up. Uh, Bridget is ill. Get her the uh, notes. And who else? There's a sixth person, too, that's supposed to be here. But I, all right, well, we'll find that out when the time comes. How many of you read Lucretius? Oh. Not all the way through. Okay, well, that's, no. Uh, yeah. Here's the deal. When I ask you, have you read the book, um, the proper answer is yes. And when I'm asking that, I'm not asking, did you open the book or look at it or play with it? I'm asking, did you read the book? Okay. All right. That being said, um, how was your reading for Christmas? I hope none of you had a good time except for Christmas Day itself. <laughs> All right. The rest of you should be working. All right. Um, the Quran, Virgil. Next week, uh, on Tuesday and Thursday, we're doing Virgil. And the way we're going to run class is that uh, um, I'm going to have somebody give an oral presentation in each class. And what, you have, what I'm looking to have you do is to learn how to talk. Right? In other words, um, you can come up with notes if you want, um, but it loses something if you just read them. What I want you to do is to have read the book sufficient, with sufficient care so you can talk about it. Okay? In other words, I'd like you to do something roughly like what I do. All right, but you only have to do it for 10, 15 minutes, you know. So uh, uh, Tuesday we have book one through six of, the, of Virgil, the Aeneid, and Thursday we have seven through 12. Who's gonna present these? I do one through six. You'll do one through six, good. All right, there we go. Everybody's gonna get their turn. And because it's a small class, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> All right, that being said, um, what do you think of Lucretius? Very pre-Socratic-like. Except that, of course, he's post-Socratic. Yeah. But can you see now, again, it's only gradually going to become apparent to you over the course of this two-year experience um, that I put this syllabus together with great care because I know that these books are going to be talking to each other. It would be very hard to start with Lucretius himself if you don't know the pre-Socratics and why they're important and also the problems that they generate, all right? So, yeah, you need the pre-Socratics in order to understand Greek philosophy and Greek art, but you're gonna need it for the Romans as well. Matter of fact, you're gonna need it for quite some time. So, um, pre-Socratic physics is important here, and he's obviously um, drank the Kool-Aid. In other words, he's gone the whole way with this. He thinks the world is atoms in the void. Atoms are these little bits of matter, and the void is space. And what you see is what you get. Um, this is going to eventually, in about, oh, 1,500 years or so, turn into, actually more than that, about 2,000 years, um, it's eventually going to turn into empiricism, which is what we're going to study when we get to Hume, which is, uh, I think, in next October or November or something, assuming that you're going for the whole two-year cycle. So um, this is a logically coherent, reductive account of the universe. He's a strict materialist. And for him, the great master of ethics is Epicurus. I didn't have you read Epicurus because he's not much of a writer. Whereas this actually pulls it all together. Epicurus, all right, announced that pleasure was the good, the natural good. And that's not, that's not a frivolous idea. I don't agree with it, but it's not a silly idea. 
I might be tempted to call it something like the default position for the human psyche. In other words, babies, before you teach them right and wrong and what they should and shouldn't do, um, they like lollipops, they don't much like hot sauce. Right? Taste the hot sauce, they don't like that. Taste the lollipop, thumbs up, we're good. So, people, not just hypothetical babies, but people like you, naturally like pleasure. I do too. Right? And that's not by itself a moral evil. In other words, there's nothing unchristian or immoral about enjoying a beautiful day. As a matter of fact, if your version of Christianity doesn't allow you to enjoy beautiful days, um, there's something deeply wrong with the way you're looking at religion. All right? um, as Thomas More is going to say later on in Utopia, um, harmless pleasures, pleasures that carry with them no corresponding sin, nobody has any rational objection to them. You can't. Right, so uh, in other words, you shouldn't choose to eat food that's uh, going to make you sick, as opposed to food that's healthy for you. All right, and you'll probably enjoy food that's good for you rather than food that is going to make you sick or spoiled or something. And again, this is not immoral. Where this goes astray is by going too far. It goes from pleasure can be a good thing, which it often is, to pleasure is the good thing. It's the only good thing. And there, we have serious problems. So first of all, like Aristotle's ethics, this is deeply selfish. It's egotistical. Remember, the Nicomachean ethics is a set of rules organized around the uh, golden mean for how you can live the best possible life. But Aristotle never talks about stuff like, say, altruism, or sympathy, <coughs> or charity, because those don't fit into his Greek view of human goodness or human satisfaction. All right? So what this should be all right, is a deeply individual rather than social uh, approach to the world. You may have noticed that you don't feel other people's pleasures and pains due to the fact that you don't have their body, nor can you have their experience. You can see them in distress, and you might feel bad about that, but that's something that's going on inside you. That's different. All right. So we open with a hymn to Venus. Venus, the goddess of love, is also a symbol of fertility, creation, the bounty of nature. All right. And uh, when he talks about the gods, you shouldn't take him too terribly seriously. He wants to hold on to the gods because the Romans have their gods and, uh, well, it would be a pity to lose them. On the other hand, because remember that politics and religion at this point is still totally bound up. If you reject Roman religion, you're rejecting the legitimacy of the Roman state. That's seditious and you can be killed for that. Right? The idea of a separation of church and state which amounts to a separation between public and private realms, we're not going to get that until well, about 17 or 1800s. Okay? So for most of human history, politics and religion are mutually interdependent. Why do we have to obey the king? Because the gods like him. Why do we have to worship the gods? Because the king says so. <laughs> Any questions see how that works? Okay, so it would be dangerous to him to go too far, but clearly the implication of this is that um, the gods don't exist. But he doesn't say that. What he says is that the gods exist, 
but they're smart, unlike us. Which means that they don't care about human affairs. They never get excited. They never take sides like they do in the Iliad. Remember the gods on one side, the gods on the other? Lucretia says that's not even close to being true. If you were a god, you'd be living a perfect life, or per you having a perfect existence. And that would be perfect pleasure all the time. But do you think it's pleasure pleasurable to come down and have to watch the Iliad transacted? Hell no. If you were a god, would you care about human beings? Of course not. Why would you? So he thinks that the gods exist. This, again, is his saving grace, because this is clearly leading to a kind of uh, uh, materialistic atheism. But he says, of course the gods exist. I'm not an atheist. Um, they exist in some realm far, far, far away. They have no interest in the stuff that's going on here. And uh, you can't offend them because they don't care about you. And you can't placate them because they don't care about you. Yeah. Do you think he also like, believes in them in part because he doesn't want to get in trouble with authority? Mm -hmm. And that's part of it? So he just says, sure. okay, they're real, but they don't do anything? Yeah, I mean, they're real, but they're far, far away. No one's ever seen them. No one ever's ever going to see them. see them. They're made of very, very fine, delicate atoms. And they have pleasure all the time, and they last forever, and they're totally indifferent to everything else. So he can't get in trouble. For in that. other words, they're perfect Epicureans. See, we can only be imperfect Epicureans because we're human, but the gods, they have this down. You may call upon them for help, they don't care. You may blaspheme, they don't care. What this means is, is that the only moral order in the world is pleasure and pain. Now here's something you should think about because we're going to see this over the course of the next 18 months. Every philosopher, every thinker whose understanding of the, of the world around us is reductively material, they have no choice but to assume that ethics is pleasure and pain. Good is pleasure, evil is pain. Uh, have any of you ever read the Aldous Huxley novel, Brave New World? Okay, this is the beginning of that idea, which in its development is gonna lead us to the idea that a perfect world is one where people have sex and soma all the time. Yeah. So this is going to, for example, be quantified and made scientific <clears throat> by the utilitarians. We're going to create the greatest good for the greatest number, where the good is understood to be pleasure. So what we're trying to do is scientifically optimize the distribution of pleasure. But that's not a new idea. It's actually a really old idea. And to be honest, there's some natural truth to it. In other words, we do naturally gravitate toward pleasant things and away from unpleasant things. Right? And that by itself is not morally culpable. The problem emerges when moving away from unpleasant things and moving toward pleasant things involves some sort of moral transgression or sin. But he doesn't recognize that. So life then is a good thing because as he says, pleasures are easily acceptable. What he is uh, uh, accessible. Um, the master of Lucretius is Epicurus. He's the great hedonist. And 
In order to understand Epicurus, you have to understand that he's a rational hedonist, which in practice, almost none of them are. Right? So what Epicurus said was, to have a crust of bread and some cool water when I'm hungry and thirsty, that's as good as it gets in life. So in other words, he's not saying, let's all get debauched. Let's all go for frantic, crazy, excessive pleasures. Because he says, look, the point is not just to get pleasure. For Epicurus, and Lucretia's going to pick this up, the point is to get pleasures without any corresponding pains. And that makes a big difference. You're living in college dormitories, I assume? OK, then. We have plenty of Epicure Epicurean episodes to inquire into. At some point in your life, don't know whether you're of legal age to drink or not, but at some point in your life, it has probably occurred to you that alcohol is pleasant, which it is, generally speaking, assuming you have a competent bartender. And, uh, and uh, there is a, it easily turns into the excessive consumption of alcohol. So um, two cocktails, that's a, a, an enjoyable evening. A bottle of vodka means you're going to feel wretched and you all know what I'm talking about, either directly or indirectly. Don't tell me differently. So Epicurus is going to say, look, that doesn't make any sense because you're not weighing in the balance the cost-benefit analysis. What you want is pleasant sensations, pleasant experiences, but you don't want those that have any corresponding pains. You can have two vodka columns and sit back and chat with people. All right, you'll feel okay in the morning. You drink a whole bottle of vodka, you're gonna wreck your car and do stupid stuff, end up on academic probation or disciplinary probation, and you're gonna feel awful in the morning. Epicurus says, race ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. No rational person would wanna be as hungover as it is possible to get. And undergraduates frequently push that on them. I went to college, I know. Okay, so the point then is this. We're gonna be rational in our pursuit of pleasures without any corresponding pains. This is the goal of human life. But what gets in the way of achieving this goal? And the answer is irrational fears. You fear imaginary stuff. It's like when you're a kid and you're Parents put you to bed and they say, don't get out of bed, the boogeyman's under the bed. Well, there you are, huddled under your blanket, wondering about the boogeyman. Okay, here's the deal. There is no boogeyman. And these fears were used by poets and politicians to coerce you, to deceive you. So, what that means is, first of all, there's no afterlife. So a future state of rewards and punishments, like in the myth of Ur at the end of Plato's Republic, no such thing. He's going to look at Plato's myth of Ur and he says, oh, come on, you're pulling my leg. There was never any such guy as Ur. There is no afterlife. You're just doing this so you can make stupid people behave the way you want them to. Fair enough. But the difficulty is that you get the problem of Cephalus. He lived a rock and roll life. It was all sex and drugs and rock and roll for Kephalus. He got rich, 
he cut some moral corners, he did some things that were excessive and improper, and now he's afraid that God's going to send him to Hades, and he's going to get punished. Well, Picture says, or Lucretia says, chill out. All right. When you're dead, you're dead. You're in the same condition then as you were before you were born. What was life like for you before you were born? Now, Plato says, of course, you were dropped in the river of forgetfulness, which explains why you don't know. Um, but did any of you, did you escape the river of forgetfulness? What were things like before you were born? Particularly, what were you like? You can't tell. Um, were you in pain? Were you scared of anything? Was anything threatening to you? Well, since you don't exist, it's very hard to see how you could be threatened or how you could be in pain. Well, Picture says, you come into existence, and you, prior to that, you don't have any consciousness at all. And then you live your life, and if you're smart, you gather, what, what's the poet say, gather ye rosebuds while ye may? All right, well, um, you come into existence, you absorb some pleasures, and at the end of your life, if you want to die contented and at ease, you don't believe in any of the mumbo jumbo about the gods, or the afterlife, or future states of rewards and punishments, you're gonna be just as unconscious after you die as you were before you were born. So, unconsciousness, come into existence, go out of existence, more unconsciousness. So, what's there to worry about? You know, that people are scared of death. He says, well, why would you be scared of death? Um, is it gonna hurt you? Well, no, because you're dead. You can't hurt dead people, you may have noticed that. Okay, so what are you afraid of? I'm afraid of these stories Plato told me at the end of the Republic. No, no, no. <laughs> Here, I'm going to liberate you from that anxiety. So this is a book with a humanitarian intent. He says, look, you, all you people have been brought up on a bunch of poetic rubbish. See how this is like the pre-Socratics and it's a critique of myth? All right. And he said, the fact of the matter is, there's only the here and now, there's only pleasure and pain, and everything else is stories for children. What, isn't this like the, the, the sophists have the same exact thing? Well, remember, the sophists don't have this emphasis that Epicurus and Lucretius do on moderation. Right? They say, go out and get as much power as you can. Think about somebody like Alcibiades. Yeah. Alcibiades is anything except moderate. Right. Think of him uh, at the end of the symposium. He's wrecked, and so is everybody else. And he must have had a ringing hangover in the morning. All right. So um, Alcibiades and the Sophists, while they, and, or who would be an example of, of their teachers, um, these are people that have not fully appreciated the advantages of moderation. All right. Think of the encomium on Helen. She's the worst woman in the world. She gets off with Gorgias, okay? So, what he's trying to do then is to free mankind from the belief in anxiety-producing fables. You may have noticed that anxiety is not enjoyable. Very few people like anxiety. He says, well, here, let me help you out, all right? There's nothing to worry about. Because the only thing that is a, a genuine evil is, is pain. So, for example, if someone steps on your toe, 
You might sensibly ask them, please get off my toe. And that is what anybody naturally does, regardless of what culture or intellectual or religious tradition they grow up in. All right? There's no part of the world where hitting your thumb <coughs> with a hammer is endorsed by everyone. Say, so, yeah, you should do that again. We're all going to get together and hit our thumbs with hammers. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> That's contrary to human nature. All right? And so Lucretius and the Pickers both have a point to make, and it's not frivolous. All right? This is the stance taken by many scientific types nowadays, the new atheists. All right? If they're strict scientific materialists and they're rejecting the inherited mythic tradition of the West, which, you, which inevitably involves Christianity, when you ask them what we should do, the answer is going to be enjoyable things. And what should we avoid? We should avoid causing pain to ourselves or to other people. And the best way to do that is to accept the fact that there's nothing to worry about, there's no moral order to the world, and whatever, you, you, whatever problems you have, you're going to be dead soon. Chill. All right? So, um, what we have here is a unified science. And that's in some ways the dream of Western philosophy. You have one set of very small assumptions about the world, and from that, you're going to be allowed to construct the universe. We do feel pleasure and pain. We are naturally more inclined towards pleasure than pain. Pleasures that carry with them terrible pains, like hangovers, are a bad idea. Sex is a good thing, but love is not. Here's why. Um, sex is a natural, enjoyable activity. Animals do it, people do it. But right, when you become emotionally and romantically attached to someone, that can only lead to the worst kind of mental turmoil. Does he love me? Does she love me? Mm, is she cheating? I don't know. <laughs> well, here's the deal. If you care about that, do not have sex with such a person. What you want to do is have sex with someone, say a slave, that you don't know, and so you can have a brief interaction that's enjoyable, and then you go do whatever you're going to do. But you don't want to think about that person a second time. You don't want to say, I wonder what's going on in their brain. Who cares? All right. They got their pleasure. You got your pleasure. Relax. Yeah. Doesn't he talk about, um, doesn't he talk about though how it's like bad to get caught up in like objectifying and like only using it like he says, they can't decide what to enjoy first with the hand or the eye. Um, and he talks, he kind of talks about how it's bad to get caught up in like objectifying. So wouldn't that go against? Well, I don't know. What do you mean by objectifying? Or like um, just seeing, lusting. Like just seeing okay. women for. Lusting? Um, lust is going to get you in trouble, like every other powerful emotion. What you want to do is chill, right? You want a moderate amount of sexual desire. You satisfy that. But you certainly don't want to be dreaming about your beloved. Right? That means you're in a state of mental turmoil. The whole point here is equanimity, equipose, <clears throat> tranquility. Why get excited? There's nothing to get excited about. The whole universe is just atoms in the void, things bouncing off each other. 
and space is infinite, and it may be that matter is infinite, but if it's not, then eventually you get the cycle repeating inevitably if there's a finite amount of matter. So, what he's doing is something surprising. He's writing a book that stems from a benevolence towards mankind. You poor benighted people, you were ill-educated, and you were told about the gods and uh, the afterlife and all that crap. Relax. All right, none of it's real. All right. Here's an interesting question to which I think Lucretius has no answer. Why should he care whether other people feel anxious or not? In other words, what's it to him? I mean, yeah, if you bang your, your thumb with a hammer, that will cause you pain. But if somebody else bangs their thumb with a hammer, what's it to you? If you get caught up and empathize with them, you're dangerously close towards caring about them. <laughs> right? So one of the problems that Lucretius has is that I don't see how within his system this contributes to his pleasure. I mean, I think that what he says is a nice guy who's trying to share his insights. But the question is, whence this compassion and what's its value? It's, I mean, I've written books. I know it's a, it takes a long time and it's hard work to write a book. Okay, so why weren't you out absorbing small pleasure instead of writing this book for everybody else's benefit? You know? Would the pleasure be that I feel like he's very egotistical and that he's writing this because he's when he writes, he kind of portrays like he's above people, like he's saying these idiots don't understand. Like well, if they right. all just follow my That's mind, absolutely but. true. The problem is it's true of everybody else we read in the, in the course of two years. Uh, yeah. There's not one of them has a small ego. Yeah. Right? What these are is, what we're going to see is something like uh, the mental analog of sumo wrestling. These gigantic heads coming into the ring and pushing each other out one after the other after the other. And they just get bigger and bigger and more full of steroids. Well, um... At this point, um, Lucretius wants to do something to benefit the world, which is a nice altruistic vision that I can't see how to integrate into Epicureanism. I mean, I think it's a nice thing to do because it shows a compassion or concern for other people, but I don't see how that causes him pleasure. You see, if you start caring about other people, you could easily start feeling bad on their account. And the question is, why would you do that? Why wouldn't that be irrational? Right. Now, Epicurus gives us the tetrapharmacos, the fourfold remedy. Here is a slogan which will dissolve all the problems in your life. Get ready for this. God holds no fears. That's due to the fact that their existence is the most attenuated possible thing in the universe. He's not going to cross a line and say they don't exist. He knows that's going to get him in trouble. But he says, they're very far away, and they're made of this very, very thin stuff, different from what we are. And they have absolutely no interest in us, and they never interfere with human affairs. So, in other words, he's on the very brink of atheism and doesn't go. All right? And gods that have no interest in human affairs are, for all practical purposes, non-existent. You can't pray to them for help because they don't care about you. And you can't uh, make amends with them. Remember the first uh, chapter in, or the first book in the Iliad where we have to go, where when Apollo's priest gets disrespected because his daughter gets taken away, um, 
we have to go and sacrifice to Apollo and make a, amends to him and then Apollo will forgive us and then the, the plague will stop. Well, Epicurus says, or rather, uh, Lucretia says, um, there's no point in placating Apollo because he doesn't take offense because he doesn't care about you. All right. He doesn't cause epidemics because of the fate of some, of some girl. No such thing. Epidemics, like everything else, are atoms in the void. None of them have any purpose. There's no teleology in the universe. So it's a random mixing of stuff, which is not very different from the contemporary reductive scientific outlook on the world. In other words, what sound, the, the reductive scientific materialism that you see in people like uh, Hitchens or uh, who's the guy? Dawkins, um, those new atheists, what they are is modernized Lucretius. Notice, one of the things that I like about Lucretius is that once you get, yeah, right. Didn't Hitchens and Dawkins deny the existence of God completely? Yeah. So, yeah. They're, so they're not like, like him, because they go the full way, don't they? Yeah, they are, because they're not going to get in trouble for, uh, but they could have just as easily plugged in the idea that, yeah, God exists, but he is not anywhere around here. He's totally indifferent to the world and never acts in any way that you can see. De facto, God's being given uh, the gate. Okay? So it's not much of a move to actually just say, look, chuck it out. Why bother with that stuff? All right? So this philosophy is designed to protect us from irrational fears, the fears that children have of monsters under the bed. And stop and think about it this way, all right? Um, he lives 99 to 55 BC, so Jesus hasn't been born yet. And Yahweh, although he's revealed himself to the chosen people, has not revealed himself to the rest of the world. Okay, so which do you think makes more sense and is more defensible? The 12 gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon or this? It turns out, actually, that there really isn't any such person as Jupiter. And it turns out also that uh, Somebody uh, that uh, Mars, the god of war, he doesn't exist either. There's just war. Uh, Venus, the goddess of love, sex, no such thing. There's just love and sex. So, um, what it means is that uh, you have a choice. You can go with these old-fashioned myths, which are as old as Homer, because you got to remember that the Roman gods are stolen from the Greek tradition. Because they take the whole set of myths that the Greeks had and the same six gods and six goddesses with a sky daddy at the top. And then they change the names to Latin names and now we got a religion. Okay, which do you think is more rational? Which do you think offers a better account of the world? In other words, if you're living it in 60 BC and you have a choice between pouring out incense to... Uh, Caesar, because he, or Caesar doesn't exist yet, pouring out incense to uh, uh, Jupiter, or saying, look, this is ridiculous, this is kid stuff, there's no such thing, and if you have any sense at all, you just ignore that stuff, move on. Um, given the context, because Christianity isn't, isn't competing with it, doesn't exist yet, um, I don't think this is an unreasonable account of the world at all. I think in light of later developments that there are many problems that emerge. But 
this is a coherent, rational, economical account of the world. In other words, you don't have to constantly be inventing all kinds of new sea monsters and dangers and spooks and spirits and all the rest of that poetic jazz. He says, look, all right, it's pretty simple. The world is what it looks like it is. All right? The table is not secretly a monster. As a matter of fact, there aren't any secret monsters. What you see is what you get. Uh, the acronym for that, WYSIWYG. And look, all naturalistic materialists are going to say the world around you is what it looks like it is. And the alleged other domains of reality that you can't directly experience, they don't exist at all. They have as much empirical reality as Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, this is not a frivolous set of ideas by any means. What he's doing is saying, look, I'm going to criticize Roman myth very gently, of course, so I don't want to end up with my head cut off. And in the same way that the pre-Socratics criticized Greek myth, and actually, given the live options, remember that the, you can't go to Jerusalem and have the Jews make you a Jew because actually you're not born into the chosen people. It's not a proselytizing religion. All right? uh, the covenant that God makes with Abraham isn't going to be universalized until we get Jesus. So now, assuming that you weren't born into the chosen people, there's this, and there's Jupiter's you know, thunderbolt. Yeah, I think this is actually a better alternative. I mean, it has many problems, but I see the attractions of it. All right. Mostly because reheating and serving leftover Greek mythology um, strikes me as being a pretty unsatisfactory <coughs> world. Okay. So, the tetrapharmacos. Let's go through that. God holds no fears because he doesn't exist. Death holds no worries. Because you don't exist. <clears throat> All right. Good is easily attainable. If someone is stepping on your toe, ask them to get off your toe. If you have hit your thumb with a hammer, refrain from doing so in the future. I don't know. That sounds like commonsensical advice to me. I would be very skeptical of somebody that said the opposite. No, you should bang away on your thumb. Okay. So good is easily attainable. Pursue small pleasures that don't cause you any pain. What Epicurus did was withdraw from public life. Why would he care about what was going on in society or politics? He's really wealthy, and so he puts together in Athens a pleasure garden. It has walls around it, and inside we have beautiful, fragrant, colorful plants. And maybe peacocks kind of wander around because they're beautiful. And he has talented musicians come in so he can have a little bit of good music. He has rhapsodes come in to perform plays or Homeric epics. He has prostitutes come in because sex is a pleasure. He has an excellent wine cellar. Why? Because wine is a good thing and excellent wine is excellent. Gourmet food, yes, I have excellent cooks and we get the best. Sex, pleasure, sleep. Uh, I have a little good wine. Again, I don't drink excessively, so I become intoxicated and sick later. Instead, I have enough to get a, a mild buzz. You get to the point where you, f you start finding yourself interesting. 
right? Mm -hmm. But not so drunk as you think karaoke is a good idea. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, that, 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 there you are clearly twice the legal right? When he says, yeah, I should get up there and sing for a little bit. Yeah, boys are sure. right. Stay away from the hard stuff, kids. <laughs> And you all know what I'm talking about. There we go. All right. So um, what Pickers wants, what Pickers wants to do, is to have us spend all his time constantly absorbing small, harmless pleasures. So um, you have a good breakfast, and then you read some fine work of literature. You gaze at some paintings or some sculptures, the good stuff. Then you, if rich enough to order, to order them, put them in your garden. You smell jasmine, all right? You have musicians come at given times. Again, you don't want to listen to music all the time because it gets kind of dull. But you shift from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure, like a butterfly from flower to flower, and you absorb the pleasures that you can. And eventually, you get old and you get sick and you die. No one enjoys getting sick, so you should do what you can to remain healthy. On the other hand, sooner or later, everybody's going to die. But there's nothing to worry about because the final part, good is easily attainable, evil is e easily endurable. In other words, if someone is standing on your toe, ask them to get off your toe. Right? If you are terminally ill, you're always at the liberty to commit suicide if you can't absorb any more pains. All right, and then you're dead. And one of the great things about being dead is that you don't feel anything. You don't feel pleasure, you don't feel pain. So, uh, evil is easily endurable. This is actually not so far-fetched. Given the assumptions he's making about the world, this actually makes sense. All right, let's look at the six parts of this. Now remember that, he, that Lucretius died with this unfinished, all right? Um, the tradition holds that he died when he had taken a love potion and overdosed on it. Nobody knows if it's true. That may be just a way of uh, later authors, particularly Christians, showing what a wicked guy he is and how crazy he was and stuff like that. Nobody really knows how much emphasis to place on We don't know much about Lucretius. But um, it's a very coherent account of the world. In other words, here's a guy who can account for the gods, who can account for anxiety, who can account for animals, earthquakes, the stars. In other words, it's an entire universe, which is no small feat in a, in a, I don't know, relatively short book. All right. So, section one, Adam is in the void. This is what exists. In other words, matter and space. And they go whizzing about in their orbits, doing what they do. And you are made up of that stuff, because everything is made up. So what you are is these atoms in a particular spatial configuration. This configuration holds together for a while, and then it breaks apart, which is called death. Okay, yeah. How close is Lucretius writing to Aristotle? Because the styles seem pretty similar to me. Like the style of thinking is um, very grounded. Well, again, both of them are very practical, but no, this is 99 BC. Aristotle is what? late 300s, or rather early 300s, 370 or so, okay. 350. All right. So, yeah, like Aristotle, Lucretius has made his peace with the external world, and they're deviating from Plato. Unlike Aristotle, um, 
Epicurus holds pleasure to be the good, whereas Aristotle says um, pleasure is something we have in common with animals. That cannot be the distinctively human good. So he thinks hedonism is an inferior, poorly thought out idea. You know, we can debate that, but the point is, it's an ongoing debate. All right? Okay, so the universe's atoms in the void. We're in good shape. This we got from the pre-Socratics, particularly from one of the later pre-Socratics, Democritus. All right? It turns out that this is an ins- that the idea of atomism, that the world is broken up into these tiny little indispensable, uncuttable, unseparable units, um, not only turns out to be a very fertile idea, it turns out to be the one that we've currently adopted in our view of the physical world. Right? I mean, we've gone farther, farther in the sense we found out that the atoms are not unsplittable. We broke them into their parts, and then we broke the parts into their parts, and the parts got broken into their parts. Yeah. Could you consider him like the father of like all, of, like kind of, not Scientology, what's the word, like... Um, explaining, yeah, explaining things like the Big Bang. Like, yeah, um, purely physical reductive science. Yeah. yeah. So he's a pure naturalist. Mm-hmm. So there's no metaphysics; it's only physics. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's certainly possible. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that he invented it. We can go all the way back to Epicurus, who's roughly a contemporary of Aristotle, so a couple of centuries earlier. Who's before Democritus? Uh, I was saying Democritus. Could oh, you consider him the first? You could. Well, that's going to be one of the implications that's hidden in his reductive materialism, mm-hmm. right? But I don't know, or I don't think anyway, that he actually worked those implications out. Okay. That's what Epicurus does. Okay. He says, okay, if you guys are right, then we should all relax, put our feet up, and have a drink. <laughs> right? And we'll have small pleasures all the time. And we're never going to get excited, because there's nothing to get excited about. We're going to have tranquility and peace here in our pleasure garden. We have lovely plants, lovely people, good food, friends, not necessarily because we like them in themselves, but it's nice to have people around. Each of us is egotistically engaging in friendship so that we can have the pleasure of social life. It wouldn't be so much fun with the peacocks alone. You want people, but you don't want to get emotionally involved with them. You just want them around to have talks about the small pleasures they're absorbing. Okay, so we know what what the world is made of in section one. Section two, atoms explain phenomena. And this is a big deal. Your mind is in your chest. This is a holdover from Greek medicine. When they talk about the heart of an individual, (laughs) they're talking about the subjectivity of that individual. In other words, they literally and seriously believe that your consciousness is in your chest. In this ancient view, your head was designed to cool your blood down and send it back to the chest where it could go have more thoughts. Okay. Now, it turns out we have a problem here. The world and everything in it is composed of these atoms and compounds of atoms. All right, they connect together. So, for example, since atoms are apparently infinitely small, this table is made of a whole bunch of them right, connected together that have this shape. But this shape is not eternal. You could always get a saw and cut through it. 
but it'd still be made of atoms. Okay, now here's the problem. The naturalistic reduction that Lucretius is going for here leads not just to uh, a rejection of metaphysics, it also leads to strict determinism. In other words, when you push one domino, it hits the next, it hits the next, it hits the next, all right? And no domino just decides one day to fall on its own. It can only be knocked down, it can only fall if it's knocked down by some external domino that hits it. Okay, here's the difficulty. If the world is purely causally determinate, and it looks like it is, I mean, I think if, if we were to perform an experiment and pour water down an inclined plane a hundred times and watch it roll down that inclined plane, we might be tempted to say, water runs downhill. Okay, that's a good idea. Why? Such is the nature of water and such is the nature of the inclined planes. Do you want me to do it a hundred first time? Fair enough. But if that's a purely natural causal necessity, and if this natural causal necessity is intrinsic to the nature of the atoms that make this up and the void through which they move, what that means is that everything is causally necessary and nothing can happen independently of this mechanical causality. Now here's the problem. This destroys the possibility of ethics. What Lucretius is trying to tell us here is say, look, chill out. There's a better way of life without anxiety that you can live when you give up on those old myths. The question is, how is it possible for me to give up on them since before you were talking to me, I was completely controlled by these myths, and now after you're talking to me, apparently I no longer am, and you want me to do something else? So Lucretius now has painted himself into a corner, and you'll find that every naturalistic, scientific, reductive guy is going to have that problem. How is freedom possible? If freedom is possible, well then the world isn't universally causal, but how can that be since everything is just one atom hitting another, hitting another? And he says, I, I worked it out. This is possibly the dumbest idea of the Roman Republic, right? the swerve. Get ready for this now. Lucretia says, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I believed all those ancient myths, but now I'm an Epicurean and a strict naturalistic reductive scientific guy. And yet, and I think that I chose to not believe in one thing and start believing in something else. Now, if the thing I claim to believe in is right, I didn't make any choice. That was just more atoms pushing me around or not pushing me around. So the word ought can't mean anything in a purely determinate universe. Everything, in other words, you can't say, when I pushed in a bunch of dominoes, you can't say that dominoes number 71 and 59 ought to fall over, but the rest of them are just doing what they do. That doesn't make any sense. Right? So, but what he's got to do here is invent some kind of mumbo-jumbo special pleading so that he can hold on to the idea of human freedom, without which you get complete fatalism. Here's what happens. Every once in a while, in a completely indeterminate and unpredictable way, Atoms, instead of falling down as they naturally all do, swerve. These swerves are 
what enables the possibility of human freedom and choice. I was going to go study, but I decided to go to the bar. Swerve. <laughs> All right. I used to believe in Plato's myth of error, but now I believe in Lucretius. Swerve. <laughs> okay. Um, what this means is that what he's, in a, essentially what he's doing is importing something that is ontologically foreign, which is indeterminate atoms, into a system which prides itself and actually has its greatest achievements attached to causal determinate necessity. One of the best ways of handling, for example, in the contemporary world, these kind of new atheists, Hitchens and Dawkins and the like, you ask, you ask them, um, I think you're trying to persuade me to believe this on account of the fact that it is better and more true. Well, here's the question. Um, what is the physical structure of betterness and truth? In other words, I don't see how any collection of atoms can be any better than any other. I mean, you may happen to like one, but since I don't have your feelings, I still don't understand why I have to like it. Instead, why don't I believe in the flying spaghetti monster? And they say, well, look, there's really no reason. And I said, that's all I want from you, thank you. All right. They're going to say, look, this is elegant, this is... Uh, gives you greater power over the universe, it frees you from anxiety, it uh, frees you from the illusions that have led to bad conduct on, the count, on account of myths. That's what's good about it. But then you come back to them and say, look, um, and no collection of atoms is intrinsically good or evil unless you want to show me that goodness is a property that any atom can possibly have. So you're not talking about what's good or bad in the world. What these new atheists are really doing is talking about their feelings. What they're saying is, I would feel much more comfortable if people were reductive scientific materialists like me. Well, the question emerges, why would the rest of the universe be interested in comforting you? And there really isn't any answer to that. Well, I can make fun of or ridicule things I don't believe. Well, you can, but what difference would that make? You find them ridiculous, Perhaps I find them ridiculous, or perhaps I don't. But what difference does it make? In other words, this is going to lead up to Hume in the 1730s when he's going to come up with a very powerful and very difficult, very disconcerting idea that there's no way to derive a statement that uses the term ought from any collection of statements that use the word is. The visible stars in the night sky are where they are. What sort of observation would we have to make in order to find out that the stars are where they're supposed to be? And what would that look like? I mean, if they are where they are, that I don't think anybody could sensibly dis dispute. That that's how they're supposed to be, uh, that's not an observation of any kind. And it's not true just about stars, it's true about political arrangements. It's true about law. It's true about ethics. So science can tell us the way the world is. The idea that science can tell us how it ought to be is a bluff. 
what these guys are really doing is smuggling in their own preferences, which is to say their own feelings, and trying to tell us that science created these preferences. Alas, no. When you look at things in the world, when you look at people doing things, and you say, that guy is doing X, and this guy is doing Y, and the other guy is doing Z. There's no set of observations that you can make that will tell you that the guy doing X is doing what he ought to do, and the guy doing Y is doing what he ought not to do. That's not, a, that's not an observation. That's an interpretation. But all the naturalistic reductionists, they don't have anything outside of space and time and matter. So if there's any odd in the world, it has to be among the matter. And, well, I, I've, I've noticed, for example, that sheep grow wool, but I don't think it's a possible observation of sheep that they ought to be growing wool. I mean, they do, but that doesn't prove anything about what ought to be. Maybe the world is completely as it ought to be, but that's not an observation either. Maybe it's none of it is as it ought to be. That's not an observation. So I don't know if it is even possible to observe ought. You can observe what is. Hard to see it. You can observe what ought to be. Lucretius has that taken care of, though. He's ignored the is-ought distinction. He says, look, I don't care whether people ought to pursue pleasure. Instead, I'm going to point out to you the relevant fact that people do, in fact, pursue pleasure. I've never <coughs> seen a five-year-old, a two-year-old, prefer the hot sauce to the lollipop. And it's not that we have corrupted their soul by making them like lollipops. Every two-year-old likes lollipops. All right. So he says, regardless of whether we should pursue pleasure or not, we do, and that's enough for me. That's actually going to also be enough for John Stuart Mill in the 1860s when we get to utilitarianism. Okay. One of these you're going to notice is that everything is connected to everything else. All right. It's this giant web, a giant network of interconnected ideas. And it develops temporally, chronologically over time. That's what we'll find out in the next year when we do Hegel. But for now, we have the embarrassment of ethics. And we solve that problem by inventing the least plausible idea from the age of the Roman Republic. That every once in a while, for no good reason, for no causal necessity, every once in a while, an atom does this. It does a little curlicue around the universe. Why does it do that? Because if it doesn't do that, then we can't have any freedom in my system. It's wrong. Yeah? Is that really freedom, though? Isn't it just us being determined by the atom swerving? Rather yeah, than but, the it, atom but, the, but it swerves in an independent, in, is in a, an indeterminate way. So it's not causally necessary that it go this way as opposed to that way. But it's still not freedom. Well, um, they would say uh, it depends on how you understand freedom. Is freedom the absence of causality? What would it be like to live in a non-causal universe? If you were to freely decide to give uh, charity to the poor, right? Um, how would it be? Um, I'm going to put this. I think for a second. 
Confucius would say that if being the origin of your own actions is not determinate, it must be the product of some indeterminate physical process, and that would be the swerve. The problem is, it's the most obvious kind of special pleading, and it doesn't really explain anything. What it just says is that 99.9% .9 of the universe is completely determinate and necessary, but there's a very few things that aren't. And I stick them in here, not because they really belong here or make any sense here, but without that, I'm not going to be able to hold on to ought. I'm going to have to give that up and just say, this is how the world is. But this is a book about how everybody ought to act. Avoid needless anxiety. Stop believing in an afterlife and the gods and all that jazz. So this is a moral work in which he's trying to give people moral advice that he claims to derive from a world that is completely made up of is statements. Mm -mm. I mean, you know, that's where the referee comes out and says, that's a foul, <laughs> right? I'm sorry, but that's contrary <laughs> to the rule. In other words, if you're going to allow that in, what else can't you allow in? In other words, once we have indeterminate swerving atoms for no reason, um, the question is, what sense does a half-determinate or partially-determinate universe make? In other words, I don't see how, in other words, he loses the coherence that he gets from the strict naturalistic reduction. So now we got this other thing. How is swerving atoms doing what they do for no good reason different from personifying them as goblins? Or demons that enter into a person and you know, demonic possession, all that. He, I mean, that's the kind of thing Lucretia's going to look at. So don't be stupid. Well, okay, but if we're not, then we're going to go back to <clears throat> the rigorous system that's always implicit here, which is strict reduction. The problem is, is that no one experiences the world as if they were not making choices. So, so yeah. does he believe in free will, or does he think the instance when you change, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go study, I went to a bar that's just a swerve? Or does he believe that you freely make that choice? You make the choice, but the choice, remember, since your consciousness is material and your psyche, which is your soul, yeah. that's also made of matter. Yeah. <coughs> the only way you can do anything within your consciousness is <coughs> the effect of okay. certain neurons and synapses firing, okay. which is matter all the way down. Okay, that makes sense. So he's between a rock and a heart. None of the strict scientific materialistic reductions are perfectly satisfactory. But let me let in, that's the good news. The bad news is that no system of human thought is perfectly satisfactory. We do what we can to improve, but I think it's always asymptotic. We're never going to get to the mind of God. We get smarter and more knowledgeable, and that's fair. But that we finish off the project of knowledge, that's a little too utopian. So Lucretius gets caught in section two with the swerve. It's a silly idea. It's actually quite laughable. And no doubt he himself is kind of embarrassed, but he says, look, I couldn't think of anything else. All right. All right. Section three. The soul is mortal because it's material. Your body is a physical thing. Your soul is a physical thing. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the current state of scientific knowledge about human consciousness assumes exactly that. 
In other words, if both your body and your psyche are made up of atoms, and these atoms, we're going to leave out the swerve and just have them do what they do, um, <clears throat> that means if your body dies, your soul dies. And since your soul is dead, it's not possible for you to feel any pains. So there's nothing to worry about. You ever go to sleep and say, ah, oh, I need the rest? Well, this is that. Except that you don't wake up. Which, and the, given the alarm clock in the morning, I think I see the advantages of this. <laughs> right? And every one of us does. Alright? So, um, the soul is mortal, thus there's no fear of death. Uh, the spirit is what I think was eventually going to be called the nervous system. And it's spread all throughout your body. <clears throat> your mind is your brain. And unless you think that there's a soul and it's immaterial, all right, um, I think you're stuck with the idea that the mind is the brain. Okay, here's the problem. If the mind is the brain, then it's going to be hard to see how you're going to rescue freedom and on from this. But... If you want to solve the problem, or pseudo-solve the problem by saying you have an immaterial soul that's made up of this non-atomic stuff, it's kind of spooky because it's, it's not in space and time. It's kind of kind of stuff. All right, well, here's the problem. Since we now have this dualism between mind and body, all right, we, have, we just push the problem off of a step, but we're going to have to face the music now. And the question is, how does this spooky woo kind of stuff push around the meat that is made up of your body? In other words, how does this immaterial stuff cause my all-too-material arm to do this? And as far as I can tell, there is no way to account for how something non-material pushes dominoes. So, you have you pick your poison. Neither of them is any good. Both of them are very difficult. All right? If you go for a strict unity of body and soul, and you hold this unity is based upon their physical characteristics, then you're going to get a purely determinate system, but you're going to lose all moral judgment and all freedom. You can hold on to that if you want, but then you end up with the ontological impossibility of explaining how non-material stuff pushes material stuff around. For example, since matter is in space and time and matter are what the physical universe is, if something that's not part of that physical universe is making you raise your arm up and down, um, we have an insoluble problem. How does this spooky stuff get into the meat that's you and make it do this? Remember, it's nothing like matter, so it can't be a material cause. Okay, so if you can't have a material cause for this change in the synapses and neurons of your brain, what kind of cause do you want? An immaterial one. Well, okay. Then you have to explain how non-material things make material things do that. And as far as I can tell, there's no way to solve that. This is Cartesian dualism. We'll deal with this when we get to Descartes again next fall. So name your poison. Consciousness is in fact quite mysterious. My personal view is that there's ultimately going to be no scientific account of consciousness. 
due to the fact that you can't observe it. All you can observe is behavior. In order to have a science of consciousness, you'd have to look at it and perform experiments on it, repeatable experiments. But the problem is, is that although I have a privileged access to my own experiences, so far I've been unsuccessful in having anyone else's experiences. Not only that, but my suspicion is that even in the very distant future, it will still remain impossible for anybody to have anybody else's experiences. And if, you, if other people's experiences are not a possible object of your observation, then how could there possibly be a science of it? You see, so I think we're coming to the limits of what science can do. And that's one of the big themes when we look at the contemporary world uh, a year from this term. Uh, the problem is we're reaching the limits of what science can possibly tell us. And then we don't know what we're supposed to do. All right? Okay. So your mind is in your chest. Your soul is physical. No afterlife. No fear of death. Go have some fun. Okay. Section four. All right. Simulacra, that's a, a simulation. Uh, it would be like the Roman analog of virtual reality. All right. Here's how sensation happens. All right. You open your eyes, and from the, uh, the, the gray surface of this table, little, uh, a thin, very, very thin film of gray surface atoms are popping off this, and they're entering into your eye. And from your eye, they go into your brain, and there, in some mysterious way, you become conscious of the table. Okay? So this is a very early and primitive account of vision. All right? What they think is that all visible things are somehow shedding layers, the way trees lose their leaves in autumn. Every instant, uh, another layer of stuff is coming off all the visible stuff in the world. And when you see something, what you're doing is catching with your eye this thin film, this simulacra, this simulation of the table. There is no teleology of the body or of anything else. Your eye happens to see things unless, of course, you're blind, in which case it doesn't. Remember, we're talking, in some cases, people can see, and some people, places people can't see, but we're never going to have a scientific justification for saying people ought to be able to see, so this one is defective. Just, it is what it is. If somebody had a third eye, you could say, oh, that's one too many, just third eye. Yeah. What's wrong with that account of, like, your eyes picturing something, yeah. and then it, you just the particles or whatever is going into your eyes, like what's... Well, since it's so very thin, it gets absorbed, pulled together, because it's really, really thin stuff, constantly, every instant being shed off objects. So it somehow goes into your psyche, and it does something determinate, but we don't know exactly what or how, unless it's going to swerve. So, but it like processes it in your mind, is what he's saying? So what's... I don't see like what's wrong with that explanation, though. It's not wrong. Uh, I mean, you do process it. Yeah. The problem is, of course, is that he doesn't know that there are photons. Mm -hmm. And what, you're, what you do, actually do when you see something, is that 
photons bounce off a thing and they come back in a particular wavelength, which is what determines the color, it hits the cones and rods in your eye and that gets sent and turned into electrical impulses which go to your brain. That's what vision literally is. All right? And uh, again, there's much to be praised here. And this is a pretty coherent account of what, human ex of what human sense perception is. And of course, this is an absolutely crucial question for a guy with the assumptions that Lucretius makes. Okay, so the phenomena of the soul are simply collections of atoms that uh, change internally your experience, but I can't watch that, but I can watch them, it change your behavior. Watch somebody drink a bottle of vodka. I mean, you will notice changes in their behavior. You will not be able to directly observe their drunkenness, but you will be able to observe them say, wreck cars. Okay, so uh, there's no teleology, and of course this is the position that's actually held by modern natural science now. Assuming that evolution is a true account of biological development, and I think that there's little alternative to that, I mean, that's intellectually serious, um, look, different mutations happen at different times. Some of them are adaptive, some of them aren't. It's not that the eye was designed to see things, rather um, photosensitive cells developed on primitive animals and they developed over time. And the ones that couldn't uh, have, use these uh, photosensitive cells got eaten. And the other ones reproduced it. Thus you eventually get the eye. Right? So no teleology, that's another big departure from Aristotelian physics. Remember when Aristotle does his analysis of the human body, He's going to break it into its component parts and then assign each of the component parts a, pr a characteristic function. And then you can tell that a body is healthy when the functions are performed and unhealthy when it isn't. All right. Lucretia's saying, look, you're just making that up. All right. um, the fact of the matter is that there's no necessary reason to believe that the world is teleological. Instead, it's just the random interaction of atoms in the void. Right? Um, remember that you've been brought up on the idea, or at least have been educated on the idea, that, uh, that is derived from Aristotelian biology. It's really old. It's the idea that the function of your eye is to see, the function of your hand is to grasp things. And that makes sense. It's a plausible argument. But here's the deal. The great philosopher Wittgenstein, who we're going to read at the end of the last, or towards the end of the last term, um, said, most intellectual diseases are caused by an unbalanced diet of examples. So suppose, if I suppose instead of taking things that are, that are plausibly uh, called teleological, like your hand serves the function of grasping, your eye serves the function of seeing, what is the function of your earlobe? I mean, what's it supposed to be doing? As far as I can see, it doesn't have a function. Doesn't seem to do anything, just sit there. Okay, yeah? You, you, you want to oh, rise no, to the occasion? Nothing. What's the function of your appendix? What's the function of the 90% of your DNA that doesn't code for anything? It's leftover junk from evolution. The two little lines here, it's called the palate, um, what do they do? 
I mean, how do you know when they're functioning properly? Nipples on men. <laughs> Help me understand. <laughs> now, the fact of the matter is, in embryology, um, nipples develop before sexual dimorphism emerges. So every embryo has them. But you will perhaps have perhaps noticed that only women lactate, so only them are they are able to nurse children. So nipples on men, what are they for? In other words, you've been raised on an imbalanced diet of examples. I give you an alternative set of examples, which is going to make it very dubious that there's teleology in nature. Yeah. So what kind of it seems like you're saying that he's saying here is you have to accept teleology wholesale or not at all? Well, if you're going to say that some things have purposes and some things don't, or some body parts have surfaces and purposes and some things don't, it would be a sensible question to ask, how can you tell which are which? Sure, but to, to keep following that train of thought, and this is generally... Good, no, please do. Um, in regards to the swerve, mm -hmm. um, which obviously has its own problems, but why is it necessary at all in that if Lucretius were just to accept that all is deterministic and uh, he has absolutely no control, what's the problem with tossing that out the window there's no problem with it. Um, the problem with it is that uh, what it does is upend what we view as commonsensical accounts of the world. These common most of common sense was invented by Aristotle. All right, you'll find that out if you actually do the the legwork and read it. But common sense is often a set of things we believe that lots of people believe, but no one knows why. That's what that's what it means for something to be self-evident. We've got a thousand people here. We all think that X is the case. And if you ask anyone why X is the case, I don't know. It's common sense. It's self-evident. No, it's not. It's just there's a bunch of us that believe this. So here's the question. I can see how teleology might be sustained if it applied to every element in the physical universe. I can also see how it could be undermined if it applies to no element in the physical universe. What I don't clearly understand is what it would be like, what kind of universe we have if a few things, some things, had purposes, but the rest of it didn't. What's the purpose of the planet Neptune? I mean, what's it for? Let's look at the planet Neptune and see if it's doing what it ought to do. I don't understand the question. All right, yeah. So shouldn't like everything have a purpose or else like it wouldn't really be there? No. So what is the purpose of the planet Neptune? I'll bite. But we just don't we just don't know what it is. But there how do we know that it has a purpose since we don't know the purposes of the vast majority of things inhabiting our universe? Well we don't know if like we could just get rid of it that like the whole order of the planets would be thrown off and the sun will do something else that it doesn't usually do and burn us all and we'll all die. Well, if things were different, they wouldn't be the same. That's true. Yeah. But that doesn't help us find out what the purpose of Neptune is. Well, maybe there's a purpose we just don't know what it is. Maybe. Um, you know, uh, maybe there's an elephant back in my office. Mm -hmm. Then, when we don't have certainty, all we can ask is probability. And what grounds would we have for claiming that it is probable that Neptune has an unknown purpose? So it seems there's a distinction to me to be made between something that serves a function, because obviously Neptune does have its own gravitational pull, it does something. But 
having a purpose implies an, in, an intention. So asking about teleology is, it, it means something to set that up. Everything does something. But when you say that it's doing, it's, that it's performing its proper function or purpose, what you're doing is moving from is to all. So we can't really say what something's proper function is. Well, that's, that would be the argument that's being made here. In other words, I'm not dogmatically taking either side. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this is the argument you're making, and this is the argument held by the contemporary state of science now. In other words, if you go to medical school, um, they're going to teach you the various parts of the body and the biochemistry that underlies it, but they're not going to say that carbon monoxide serves this function. Well, it does what it does. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, so I don't, I, it might be Neptune, it might be one of the other gas giants, but it has such a great gravitational pull that it deflects asteroids that would otherwise hit the Earth. And if it stopped doing that, we would probably say Neptune isn't doing what it should. And I guess by that we would mean would it's we? not, yeah, because... So if we get hit by a, by a because we have no, been in the past, we never killed off the dinosaurs. Right. So Neptune wasn't doing what it was supposed to do? But if it stopped, like... There are asteroids that hit the Earth that are not affected by Neptune, but if Neptune suddenly didn't have a gravitational pull, yeah. stopped doing what it was doing, people at NASA would probably be like, why is Neptune not doing what it should be doing? Yeah. And I guess by that we mean... Would they? Or they'd say, is why is it, it doing something different? Right. I don't think in, at NASA they ever make any claims about what Neptune ought to be doing. But I think it's partly a language thing because we probably mean, why is it not doing what we expect it to do? That's right, but then we're just expecting it to do what it did in the past. Right. Or what we think things should do according to our understanding of the universe. Like not should. Things. What we can reasonably expect is different from should. They're not violating any moral precept because Neptune doesn't make any choices. Right. So is that just a language thing? No, I, I think it's a, I think that applying teleology to the universe um, pretty much collapsed after Darwin. And I don't see any way around, I don't see any way to rescue it, all right? Think of it this way. There was a time in the evolutionary development of human beings when your appendix did something. It actually performed a function. But over time, we had evolutionary change, and now it doesn't perform any function. Uh, nipples on men, the coccyx, which is a vestigial tail. What function does your coccyx serve, except to slip on ice and break it every once in a while? Um, what's the function of, say, pediatric cancer? What's it for? We're fishing in very troubled waters here. Yeah? It doesn't seem that, that any kind of uh, scientifically grounded. So in the playing field of science, where we, we simply find determinism, we can't make any statements about teleology at all. Right. So. If we're to postulate that Neptune, by drawing asteroids away from the Earth, is serving a purpose as intended, for example, if God doesn't want the Earth to be hit by an asteroid and humanity to be wiped out, then we can apply a teleology. So mm -hmm. is it simply boiled down to, at least on this, this standing, choosing a playing field of either accepting that, that there is teleology simply looking at it from, from the perspective, in this case of science, and rejecting it wholesale. Well, here's the, here's the difficulty that I have. I can see wholesale acceptance and wholesale rejection. I find it very hard to find intermediate spots. In other words, uh, 
If you're going to say that Neptune has a purpose and that its purpose is doing whatever it does, then you've just collapsed the idea of purpose into things doing what they do. So, for example, malaria has the purpose of making me sick. Okay. Um, uh, on the other side of the universe, the quasar, which is emitting these ultraviolet pulses, uh, its function is to emit ultraviolet pulses. But that means that the, now, at that point, the idea of function, or telos, has become completely empty. In other words, everything is doing what it should do because it does what it does. So when I slip and break my leg, I'm properly using my leg because that's what it's for, because that's what it did. But when we simply stick in the realm of his statements, are we, we re, is it really fair to make any question of teleology? Because science doesn't, it seems to me, admit of teleology, right? It's just, it does what it does. Right. But like you're talking about this woo, spooky stuff, mm -hmm. um, whether it be human spirit. I believe it. I mean, don't misunderstand me, but it's not as easily nailed down as this stuff. Right. But in order to give an account of that, we have to, to step outside. So what, I guess what... what outside I'm literally or outside metaphorically? Metaphorically. Okay. So literally, what do you want to do? Uh, literally, I'd like to call into question what Grishas is doing, that he seems to be doing something intermediate, which is untenable to me, at least. I think you might well be right. In other words... Uh, I don't see, I mean, I can see how you can have teleology or not, but it seems to me that if teleology is not universal, if it's just intermittent, um, then we have a problem of, having, of knowing which things have a purpose and which things don't. Uh, yes, we might say that my, my eye, since it sees, performs the function of seeing. Okay, but my, also, my eye also occasionally absorbs grains of sand. All right. Um, and then it's doing what it does in the same way that Neptune does what it does. I, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that the telos of my eye is to absorb grains of sand. Yeah. It's problematic to me the idea that human beings, not like parts of the human body, but human beings don't have a telos. So because there are things that are more in line just, just from practical experience, there are things that are more in line with human good and things that are less in line with human good, which would seem to imply an end. I think you're uh, right. So but you're not talking about the way the world is. You're talking about the way the world ought to be. Am I, though? Because well, if it, you say we should pursue the human good and avoid the human evil, I think you are, yeah. Involving an ought, and you can only involve an ought if there's a telos. Well, if, I if think that, that if it's... If it's... How can I put this? Ought statements are normative in the sense that they describe how the world should be rather than how, merely how the world is. It allows for the possibility of a disjunction there. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't see how any set of observations can supply you with a telos. Now fortunately for us, when you talk about the human person or a human, a human being, um, there you have both an internal life, consciousness of the soul, and an external life, this meat here. How to make these things connect, I'm afraid I don't know. I don't know anybody that does. And you're right. Um, if there's a knowable human good, then there is a, a purpose for human activity and human life. Um, I'm not sure that this knowable human good is going to help us with what Neptune is supposed to be doing. Well, it seems to me, at least to be kind of related to the conversation we had last semester about what has nature 
Or like Clever what girl, that's exactly right. And if Neptune doesn't have a nature, it doesn't have an end. Well, hold it. Um, why does Neptune need to have a nature? Or what do you mean by a nature except that it has an end? Yeah, I guess that's a fair distinction to make. But I don't know. I haven't thought it through enough to I know, articulate that. You're a smart girl. I want this pushback from you. This is, in other words, look, I'm not a Lucretian. What I'm going to do over the course of this very long journey is take the side of whoever we're reading. Next week I'll destroy it, whatever it is we did the week before, as you noticed. But the point is, it's irresponsible to criticize and wreck uh, any system of thought until I've explained to you what the advantages are and what makes this attractive and coherent. And so um, when I point out that Lucretius seems to have an argument here, that at least some things in the world are not in any obviously, obvious way teleological. And what that does is cause me to wonder, well, how do we know about the other th cases of things in the world to which we attribute the purpose? All right. And uh, that, I, I think, is a very difficult problem. I, I don't know the answer. All right. So uh, next time you hear someone make a teleological argument, Ask them about Neptune, or about nipples on men, or about your uh, coccyx, or any of the zillion things which don't obviously have any kind. I mean, no doubt there is some particular speck of dust 188 zillion light years from here. Um, it may have a purpose, but I have no idea what it is. And if anyone were to claim not only that it has a purpose, but that they know what it is, I think it's a bluff. Put up or shut up. I mean, I'm sure. If it, you see, if the whole universe has purpose, then that thing, 188 zillion light years from here, actually does have a purpose. And perhaps it's in the mind of God. I don't know. Um, but for human beings, uh, I don't understand what the idea, or what grounds we'd have for claiming that a piece of dust a very long way from here is doing something for reason. Yeah. So is he claiming this? What claim does he make? Does he claim that there's there can't be an intermediate stage and that it has to be either... No, he leaves us hanging there. He does. Right. In other words, I think that he believes there's no teleology because the world's a, a random assortment of a bunch of atoms moving about. All right. And I can see how that assumption would make sense. I can also see how the assumption that the world and the things in it are teleological makes sense. But depending on the, on the set of examples I offer you, I can make that appeal plausible or implausible. Right. Notice that you've been raised consistently. Whenever you go to a philosophy class, and we start talking about teleology, somebody trots out the eye, and somebody trots out the hand, and says, look what the hand does. Check it out. That's what it's supposed to do. Nobody ever says, well, what about Neptune? Better still, what about some atom at the core of Neptune? I mean, that apparently has its telos, too. Okay. It ends up being that when we get pushed hard, that we end up saying that the telos of things is to do whatever they do. But that's just a way of saying that telos is just what things do. So for example, my eye, which has the telos of seeing, also apparently has the telos of absorbing grains of sand. If you're gonna say, well, it's supposed to see, but it's not supposed to absorb grains of sand, the next question is, how do you know? What would count as evidence for such a claim? Well, I like seeing, yes. I don't like getting grains of sand in my eye. Yes. Right. The point of books like this is to rattle your cage. It's good for you. Right. 
A the discovery of ignorance is actually the beginning of getting an education. That's one of the things Socrates bequeathed to us. All right, let's go on to section five. The cosmos is material, but it is, and it's infinite spatially, but it also is mortal. It came into being, it goes out of being. We don't know how long, we'll be long gone, and we won't be conscious of it. There's no creation of the world, and that is hand in hand with the lack of teleology. No anthropomorphism. The world has not been constructed for the convenience of human beings. Any of you who have ever broken your leg will perhaps be inclined to agree. All right? In other words, we talk about certain things being natural and work on the assumption that they're good, but malaria is natural. The fact that something is natural doesn't prove that it's good. It might be, but it might not be. All right. And then this section six, cosmic phenomena. What causes everything? And here he's getting really poetic because he really doesn't know what causes things like earthquakes. But he says, well, maybe there are caves in the earth where wind flows through and it shakes the earth up. Um, it's intellectually consistent with his assumptions, but there's no evidence for such a thing. All right? But uh, eclipses, there's nothing divine or portentous about them. They're not, they don't tell us about the future. Instead, it's just one object getting in the way of another. The moon crosses the path of the sun. End of discussion. So he says, look, it's atoms from the very smallest thing to the entire cosmos, and mostly they have one domino hitting the other. We have pure causal necessity, but in order to rescue freedom and ought, we're going to have some of these things do a little cha-cha across the universe every once in a while for no good reason. So he's got a very incomplete system, but it's a promising system. Yeah. So, some things like he kind of got the, at the truth at the fact that like you hear um, or you see lightning before you hear it. Yeah. And he would he'd explained it through like one example, um, like how he said when you when you someone hits a, a tree with an axe, you see it first before you hear it if you're far away. Mm -hmm. So I feel like. He gets the right answer, but he just uses one example and then says, okay, that's how it explains everything. But he does come at the right answer. So Well, that's the thing. If, if this had no truth in it, we wouldn't be reading it. Yeah. Right? This has been influential for a very long time. And uh, there is elements of truth in it. Yeah. Right? And the problem is to try to winnow out what's true, what's false, and of course what's dubious or even what's unintelligible. Mm -hmm. right? So compared to the Roman pantheon, I actually like this better. It makes more sense. Right? I wouldn't choose it over Christianity, but I would choose it over, over Jupiter. Right? And uh, what he's trying to do is benevolent and humane, and it's completely secular, completely this-worldly. Uh, completely physical. All right, ideas have consequences. The pre-Socratics generated uh, a political earthquake, 
and that was responded to by the development of philosophy with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But those aftershocks continue. And here we have somebody who's picked up on the pre-Socratics, picked up on Epicurus, pulled them together and said, look, I'm going to tell you what the state of the art of scientific understanding is in late Republican Rome. And he said, I can explain everything. I can explain consciousness, emotion, action. I can explain uh, activity, life, birth, death, everything. And I can do so very economically with a very small number of assumptions and only one major special pleading where I come up with the swerve because I, I back myself into a corner. But apart from that, it's actually a quite coherent outing. So many of the assumptions that Lucretius is making are also made by the contemporary world of natural science right now. If you ask neurologists, doctors that specialize in the brain, what consciousness is, they're going to tell you that it's the firing of certain neurons and synapses in your brain. If you ask them, well, is there anything that's not material that somehow insinuates itself into you, they'll look at you, well, we haven't seen any such thing. And the answer would be, of course, well, because it's not material. But since we haven't seen any such thing, because it's not material, what grounds do we have for believing it's there? I can't think of any. What you see is what you get, and what you don't see is what you don't get. All right? So this will be consistent with the theme that works all through the all four terms, that there's an interaction between our understanding of nature and our understanding of ourselves. Every time we change our understanding of nature, when we have a scientific revolution, the aftershocks are going to generate a social scientific revolution, or a revolution in the humanities. So all the soft sciences like art, politics, religion, ethics, uh, law, are all going to be transformed by a new understanding of nature. And get ready for this. When we change our understandings of ourselves, we start to ask new questions about nature, and then there's a back and forth dialectic between understanding of the human, understanding of the context in which we find ourselves. Who am I, and where am I? You are a conscious individual, and you're embedded in nature. And it doesn't pull our leg with improbable ideas like Plato gives us that tables aren't real. I mean, I understand why Plato does it, and I admire him greatly. Very few people like Plato as much as I do. But I like him because he's a great asker of questions. In my estimation, almost all of Plato's answers are wrong. But they're wrong in really interesting ways, which is one of the things I'm trying to get across to you. In other words, you can ace this class by, by writing a paper that's wrong in a very interesting way. Whereas if you just write back to me the stuff I told you in lecture, it's going to get a C, because I, know what I, I already know what I think. I want to know what you think. There you go. And I like this pushback from you. I like it when it makes you uncomfortable. Look, if you're uncomfortable throughout this, you are, you are dead. You are mentally numb. Assuming you are alive, this is going to rattle your cage. Going to make you wonder about the stuff you assumed. How do I know that? What am I talking about? That's, there, there are two questions you've got to learn at the end of this two-year experience. Get ready for these. Question one is, what do you mean? Which is considerably less obvious than you might think. 
a little while ago, you gave me a metaphorical uh, movement towards uh, poetic vision. When I asked you what you really meant, I'm not really sure. Uh, we're going to do that all through the year. That's going to happen again and again and again. So question one, what do you mean? Question two, how do you know? Once I figure out what you're trying to tell me, then the question is, how do you know this? And then we're going to look at the various menu of options that you could possibly respond with. And we're going to see this develop over time. It's one big coherent process. So here's the deal with the Romans. They are a peop they're a practical people. They're more concerned with what works than with what is intelligible. If you can imagine that the Greeks were interested in science, the Romans are interested in engineering. What can we do with this? Anything the Greeks could, could, could create, the Romans could create and make it bigger. And they took Greek culture wholesale. They are not an especially innovative people. I mean, what kind of people are unable to invent their own religion? Instead, you get the Greek myths, and then you change the names to Latin names. You say, aha, now we have Roman religion. I mean, they couldn't even make up their own gods and goddesses. On the other hand, I can understand the attraction of Greek myths. All Greek culture is glorious in many ways. So they're not very innovative, but they are practical, and they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't act in such a way as they are too smart for their own good. That's why the Romans are around for 800 years, and the Greeks are around for about a century before they blow up. All right? So the Romans are practical people. They're going to take Greek ideas and implement them, stabilize them, and build on them to a certain extent. But most of what you're going to find in the Romans is already there in the Greeks. Let me give you an example, close with this idea. The great Roman epic is the Aeneid. And unlike the Homeric epics, this is a literate epic. It's a written epic. It's not the epic of, a, of an oral culture. And get ready for this now. Virgil has read Homer and really likes him. And anybody who reads it with a kind of, any kind of sensitivity, you can't help but admire the power of this really primitive poetry. I mean, it's, it's moving then and it's moving now. Okay, Virgil says, you know what? I'm gonna connect us back to Greek culture. I'm gonna show that Aeneas, the legendary founder of Rome, was really one of the, the only Trojan noblemen who escaped the fall of Troy. Okay, now be ready for this. The Roman, he's now going to write the epic of the Roman uh, regime because he's there at the at the cusp between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. And here's what he's going to do. I say, I really like that Homer. I'm going to connect us to Homer's stories. It's just going to be one big story. So I'm going to write the Roman epic. The first half, books one through six, they're about a sea voyage. Second half is about land fighting to secure a city. 
I mean, again, they can't even think up their own epic. I mean, it's just clearly just Homer with the order reversed, right? Yeah. And, oh, not again. Uh, the Greeks have tragedy, the Romans have tragedy. The Greeks have comedy, the Romans have comedy. The Greeks have law, the Romans have law. Um, you're seeing a pattern here. What do the Romans invent on their own? Very little, actually. All right. uh, military tactics, they're very good at it. Citizenship and extending it, they're good at that as well. That's why they weren't stuck in a city-state that could actually have an empire. Um, they're also pretty good at things like architecture. The Romans have something that the Greeks don't have, which is concrete. And actually, that's a hell of a useful thing, rather than being forced to quarry big chunks of stone in a particular shape, right? If you can just build a wooden mold and pour the stuff in, that's great. So that's part of why the Romans, it's one of the great Roman advances. But for the most part, the Romans are practical people, and even the best of Roman culture, the Augustan age, when they move to it, when they become an empire, um, it's generally described as a silver age. The Greeks had the golden age, but the problem is the Greeks exploded. They just cut their own throats. The Romans said, we'll settle for silver, but we're going to be around 800 years. We're going to run the universe. Practical people. Right? It's in this context, the Roman context, that Christianity emerges. That's why the second term is about Rome and Christianity. You can't separate them. Right? The reason why, Rome, why Christianity has the very extensive expansion that it does is because the Romans had about 20 or 25 or 30% of the population was slaves and they had a constant need for slaves and slaves were treated horribly they were abused and ill-treated and they were wretched and hopeless it's not an accident that Christianity was, all, was initially a religion of slaves because it brings hope to the hopeless there's a future state of rewards and punishments where you're going to have things good and your tormentors are going to be punished. And you get to watch it, too. That was one of the big thrills of, early, of the early patristics. Not only do you get to go to heaven, but you get to watch the guy you didn't like, your landlord, or somebody, ha-ha, burning. Okay. It's clear what kind of uh, emotions this is playing to. All right? But what it means is, is that Rome set the stage for its own destruction by creating an enormous reservoir of human misery. And these people are desperate, and they're wretched. And various cults were floating around Rome at the time that Christianity emerged. But Christianity is what caught on, whereas, say, Isis or Mithras did not, historically, because they were able to tap into the misery and despair of an enormous, of millions and millions of people. So the point then is, the Romans dug their own grave. Right. Christianity is going to give us a new way of looking at the world and a new way of looking at human life. And it's also going to show uh, a non-Roman interest in the well-being of the least among us. Right. 
That's why slavery is going to be eliminated when the Roman Empire falls and when the Germanic nations that supersede Roman Western Europe emerge, um, they're going to have feudalism and instead of slaves, they're going to have serfs. And nobody likes being enserfed, but it's a lot better to be a serf than it is to be a slave. If you're a slave and your uh, owner is broke, you get sold away to the silver mines in Iberia and uh, five years is the, is the average lifespan for a slave there. You get worked to death, literally. On the other hand, if you're a serf, you're tied to the land, which means you can't be sold. And if the Lord wants more food next year, he better keep you alive this year. All right. So what we're going to do is mitigate somewhat the life chances of the people at the bottom of society. So Rome and Christianity, they're, they're twined together. And the Western tradition is an uneasy braid, like a barber pole, of Athens and Jerusalem, of rationality and love. And there's a kind of uneasy relationship with them. Once in, every once in a while, they manage to harmonize. Other times, they seem to be at odds. There's a tension between them. And that's part of what we're going to be studying in this class. All right? Questions about this? I like the fact you push back. I like the fact you push back. Everybody should be pushing back against me. Remember that I'm just a stand-in for Lucretius. I'm actually not a Lucretian. But I need to be able to show you what some people find advantageous and attractive about this. In some ways, this class is a little bit like a, a class in art history. I can show you slides of all kinds of important, famous paintings. And these paintings will, are masterpieces, and they're in famous museums, and they're very, very expensive. Nobody in an art history class is expected to like equally all the stuff that ends up on the screen. Some of it appeals to you, some of it doesn't. But to have an education in art history requires, at the very minimum, that you understand what other people find attractive and desirable in this. All right? And if you've done that, you know, I have no... I don't, I don't have any interest in dictating to you which of the books you like and which of the books you don't like, which stuff you believe in and which stuff you don't. That's up to you. Use your head. Right? I'm going to check you at the end of the term, and you're going to write me a paper telling me what's going on in your head. Knock yourself out. All right? But uh, you should, some of the books you're going to like, some of the books you're not going to like. Look, there are books on this list that I don't like, but I don't put them... This is not going to be a, an excursion through Mike Segrew's mind. It's actually an excursion through the history of Western thought. And while I like some better than others, I mean, for example, I find Milton incredibly tedious to read. I mean, what a snooze. As Samuel Johnson once said, no one ever wished it longer. I mean, granted, it's really great, but does anyone want, you know, another book of this? Sweet God, stop. All right, I mean, it's just so ponderous. Um, there are books I like and books I don't like. But... Uh, I'm not just teaching you what I like, because I don't think that's a, that's a responsible way of teaching. I'm trying to teach you what the world regards as important and the reasons why they regard so. All right? So um, I'm not looking to turn out bad copies of me. All right? I'm already a bad copy of me. All right? I'm old. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want you to follow exactly my steps. You have to follow your own path. But what I do mean to do is to push you on the stuff you think you know and on the assumptions you make 
and to justify what you claim is true. I mean, you can believe anything and argue <clears throat> for or against absolutely anything. I do not care. But once you argue something, you're going to be called on it, and I'm going to ask you to explain yourself. All right? And you're supposed to have ideas and thoughts and questions. When I come in next time, when we do Virgil and every other book, um, when I say, what do you think, or what goes on in the book, um, that's not a trick question. You're supposed to answer me. Okay? All right. Questions about this? Problems with this? All right. Well, let's go read the first half of the Iliad, or the uh, uh, Aeneid, and read about the sea journey from burning Troy, okay? See you then. Tuesday morning, do we meet for 8.30?